0: I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, October 28th, we're studying 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. Those men who aspire to serve in the office of the pastoral ministry desire a good work, and so St. Paul lists qualifications needed for those men whom God would call into this holy office help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor Caleb Adams. Pastor Adams serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon. Pastor Adams, welcome to Sharp Iron.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
0: As we get started this morning, Pastor Adams, let's talk a little bit of context. We've come through two chapters of this epistle now. What do we need to know from those previous chapters? What do we need to know about Timothy or Paul or any of that context going into the verses we've got for today?
1: Yeah, so uh, Timothy, um, I guess, you know, as I grew up the son of a pastor and kind of knew pretty early on that that's where I was headed to, kind of looked up to Timothy and uh, read through these letters that Paul wrote to him and always thought of him as as the young pastor, uh, which he certainly is. And that's one of the main reasons I think Paul's writing this letter to him. Uh, But Timothy was so much more than just that. Uh, Timothy was an integral part of Paul's ministry. Um, He first met Paul in the city of Lystra and uh, is actually given a mention in each of the chapters uh, of the book of Acts from uh, chapter 16 through 20. And so you can kind of trace his uh, journeys along with Paul there and just how important he was uh, as a partner in ministry. Uh, Paul would also send him to different congregations uh, just to check up on them and to to see how they were doing, to make sure that they were uh, staying in the gospel and uh, following the word of God. Uh, we know that he was sent to at least Corinth and, and Philippi and Thessalonica. Um, and so he was a, a partner in ministry uh, to Paul. He's listed as a co-author with Paul on a lot of the, the letters that we always just say Paul writes this. Uh, but he lists Timothy as writing with him in 2 Corinthians and Philippians and Colossians, uh, First and Second Thessalonians and Philemon. Um, So they have a very close uh, personal connection. They're partners in the gospel. And uh, Paul regularly calls him um, a brother, but then also a son. And so um, as Paul writes this letter to him, uh, he's writing to Timothy as he's serving in in Ephesus, uh, watching over the church there and um, sharing all sorts of important um, advice and Um, Just some instruction on on what the pastoral ministry should look like, Um, not only as Timothy is serving in that role himself, but as he is preparing um, other pastors to serve as well. Mm
0: -hmm. And today's text is one of the more well-known, I think, from this book, particularly among pastors, because as you said, anyone who is aspiring to the office Mm -hmm. probably looks up to Timothy in a certain respect and is going to look at this text that we've got today when it comes to seeing, is this the right thing for me? because of the list of qualifications that we've got in this text today. So I'll go ahead and read it for us, and then we'll, we'll dig in. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, That's the text for today, 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. So, Pastor Adams, the first four words in English are words that we've seen in 1 Timothy already. The saying is trustworthy. And this is now the second time we've seen them. And this is actually one of the the features of the pastoral epistles. What's the significance of that phrase, the saying is trustworthy?
1: Yeah, this thing shows up uh, five times in the pastoral epistles. Uh, this is the, the second time, as you mentioned, in 1 Timothy. And uh, we'll have another one in chapter 4, and then uh, one in Second Timothy and one in Titus. And um, I think each one of these is known to us um, pretty well. Uh, my favorite's the first one that you've already talked about. Um, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, uh, something that Paul applies to himself not only here but throughout his writings, um, but is also to be applied to each and every one of us. Um, and that really sets the tone, I think, for the rest of these trustworthy sayings. Um, it's all about the gospel and it's all about what Jesus Christ has done for us and what that means for us. So whenever we see these in the pastoral epistles, um, they function as these these bright flashing arrows that point us to the truths that that Paul really wants to make sure we know. They kind of function as the the truly, truly amen, amen sayings of Jesus. Um, make sure you're paying really close attention. Um, and so in that first one, he talks about just the nature of the gospel that Christ Jesus came to to save sinners. And here he wants to highlight the office of the ministry. And um, in a couple of the other ones, he'll talk about the value of godliness and, and the faithfulness of God. And um, I love Titus 3. I didn't really realize that it was a one of these trustworthy sayings until i was looking at this again uh, but that beautiful passage about baptism and about uh, justification by grace hmm. all of these things are are trustworthy um, faithful faithful words uh, that god has to give us through his apostle paul
0: yeah the the first one is is well known to us and beloved uh, because it is such a fantastic saying there in chapter 1 and because of the hymn i think chief of sinners though i be mm-hmm. and that right. last one that you mentioned from titus 3 is also well-known, although sometimes we might miss it. And and hopefully the reason it's well-known among Lutherans is because it is in the Catechism. Luther picks that up for the third question concerning baptism as one of the one of the texts that he uses there. And it is one of these trustworthy sayings. This one, and, and I know, I mean, I'm just kind of glancing at the other two that you've got here in your notes. This one stands out as a, a bit unusual from the others because the others seem more doctrinal in nature. And I guess this one is too, but it's just... You know, the saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That doesn't strike me as too, well, I mean, like what's, I don't know, why do you think this is one of the trustworthy sayings when the others, I mean, one deals with the chief of sinners, one's all about baptism, and and here's one about if you want to be a pastor, that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, well, I guess I have a couple of thoughts about that. First is, um, I think there's some uh, debate among scholars about the nature of these trustworthy sayings. Are they simply kind of what I said, you know, these bright flashing arrows Paul uses to point us to things he really wants us to pay attention to? Or are they perhaps sayings that that were well known uh, to Timothy already, uh, that were perhaps known in the early church? Um, so the first thought is that this saying here, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, um, is very aphoristic in nature. Um, it just sounds like a saying that you would pass along. Um, And so that that could be one reason that he includes this as a a trustworthy saying. Um, But another is um, that I think sometimes um, we look at at the office of the ministry and we look at our pastors. We know that 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 role is important, that God has um, commanded us to have pastors and commanded pastors to serve in word and sacrament ministry. Um, But I don't know that we always recognize the import um, of what that ministry entails and of what uh, the men who hold that office are are being asked to uh, to fulfill, and so um, I love how how Paul includes this in one of the trustworthy sayings because it calls my attention to it uh, perhaps more than than I would look at this otherwise, which as a pastor especially is is incredibly helpful.
0: Hmm. Well, and I mean, thinking I'm just thinking through the first trustworthy saying where Paul gives, you know, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And again, he's applying it to himself and he follows that up that, you know, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, and this is the charge that's been given to Paul is to preach that good news. And so in that sense, it's not like this comes out of nowhere. And I do appreciate what you, what you said about sometimes we do fail to recognize the importance of this office or, or downplay it a little bit as if maybe it's not as good as, as, we think. Well, Paul says, no, this is a noble task here. And and two, I mean, think about this time and think about Paul himself, how much he's gone through as an apostle and how much the pastors of the churches in terms of persecution would have gone through. This is a good thing to desire this office and and to uphold that for Timothy, who's serving in that office. And as you said, is likely appointing others to that office. It does make a lot of sense here in the context.
1: Right. And Um, I think also the fact that, you know, as you mentioned, Paul goes through so much suffering and he he lists that, you know, the suffering he went through in various places. Mm -hmm. In in fact, when he was called in in Acts chapter nine, Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Um, One interesting thing is um, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Um, This wasn't a, a task that many people would have desired. Uh, Back in that context. And even today, sometimes you'll hear people talk about, you know, a young man who has, you know, the whole world before him. What are you planning to do? Oh, I'm going into the ministry. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that's nice. You you know, you'll never make any money. Um, And so this is a, a noble task. And I think Paul is reminding Timothy of that reminding us of that because we don't necessarily always treat it that way.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Now we've been talking a lot about pastor, but the word that we get here in English, at least if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. So let's talk a little bit about that term overseer. Why have we been talking about it as a pastor? What's the importance of this term here that Paul uses in first Timothy three?
1: Yeah, so in the New Testament, and particularly in Paul's letters, there are, there are basically three Greek words uh, that he uses to refer to uh, what we call the office of the pastor. Um, one of the more common ones is elder, uh, presbyter in the Greek, um, which seems to come from the, the Jewish background. Um, it referred to those who would exercise responsibility and authority in the synagogue, and this then extends to the Christian church. Um, some of the tasks that are specifically spoken of um, that are assigned to elders are preaching and teaching uh, James mentions elders as having a role in praying for the sick in the Christian community um, and then Peter says that elders are to to tend to the flock um, and so elder is a a word that uh, we sometimes use in our context uh, to mean something different um, our elders today uh, really kind of correspond most closely to the the New Testament office of deacon. But when the word elder presbyter is used in the New Testament, it's speaking of uh, the office of the pastor. Um, speaking of the flock that elders are told to tend to, um, another word that's used is, is shepherd. Um, this is the same word that's used of the, the shepherds in the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. It's the same word that uh, that Jesus uses in John 10 when he says that he is the good shepherd. Um, and actually, it's it's only used explicitly of pastors um, in one place in the New Testament, as far as I can tell, in Ephesians four, where where Paul lists this along with um, a couple of other roles in the church. Um, but that's really where we get our our word "pastor" really means uh, shepherd. And then the third word is the one in our text for today: overseer, episcopase um, in the Greek. Um, and so we have. Presbyterians and Episcopalians are both uh, denominations named after these words, kind of this form of church government governance. Uh, but the episcopacy is um, really the the overseer. The that's literally what the Greek means. Um, it's sometimes translated as bishop, um, refers to somebody in a, a supervisory role um, in the church. Uh, Luther says that that this word means a watchman, um, a visitor who goes to to see people and. To check out what's being taught and how they're living um, so that he can guard against false doctrine and, and help the people to uh, to walk in the truth. And so these three terms, um, even though they're all used in the New Testament of pastors, are, are all used pretty interchangeably. And um, there's quite a lot of crossover. And so um, Melanchthon, for example, in the, the Treatise on the Power and Primacy of the Pope, um, uses this um, interchangeability, if you will, between these terms to argue um, that any rankings in the church are of, of human making and not um, not given to us by God in Scripture, and so that all who hold the office um, have the same basic authority and um, discharge the same duties, however the church decides to uh, to divvy that up. Hmm.
0: So you've got three basic terms uh, again: elder, shepherd, pastor. Um, an overseer or bishop. And again, generally speaking, the New Testament is going to use these interchangeably to speak of that one office of the holy ministry, which Christ has given to his church to proclaim the good news publicly to administer the sacraments on behalf of the congregation. So that's what Paul's talking about here. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, this episcopus. Now, what does it mean to aspire to that office or to desire it? The two words that Paul uses
1: Yeah, it's interesting. The language Paul uses here, as we already said, this wasn't necessarily the most desirable office to be seeking um, in the the first century. Um, And yet these two Greek terms are are pretty strong. They really carry with them the sense of of reaching out for something and and setting your heart on something. Um, And so as we think about men who are are setting their hearts on this office, um, I think they're There is a godly appropriate way uh, to approach that and to desire that and aspire to that. And then there's an ungodly, inappropriate form of of aspiration. Um, The the early church fathers and and even Luther um, kind of warn against um, desiring the office in the wrong way. Uh, Luther reminds us that uh, scripture everywhere warns us away from rashness in entering the ministry. Um, It does this because everywhere one requires some call. Uh, The pious aspire to that office with trepidation. Uh, John Chrysostom in his work on the priesthood says, The first of all qualities that a priest or bishop ought to possess is that he must purify his soul entirely of ambition for the office. It is indeed a terrible temptation to covet this honor. What is terrible is to desire the absolute authority and power of the bishop, but not the work itself. Mm. Uh, Jerome and and Augustine and others uh, say similar things. Augustine says, are you seeking the name or the real thing? Um, So it's appropriate, I think, for somebody who is is seeking the office to examine their heart. Um, Like some of Paul's opponents, it would be uh, inappropriate to seek this office or to desire or aspire to it for the sake of personal gain or or power or prestige or something like that. Uh, Paul mentions those who do this um, in different places in this letter, um, perhaps that's what Hymenaeus and and Alexander are doing. Uh, Martin Luther mentions Karlstadt as as kind of taking this approach, um, not seeking to to benefit the people, but himself. Um, You know, in Philippians, Paul kind of famously says, some do preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Um, He basically says, some do it out of love. Some do it for good reasons. Some do it for selfish reasons. Um, Paul's conclusion there is, Well, at least the gospel is being preached and that's, that's what really matters. Um, but there is an appropriate way uh, to offer or, or to desire or aspire to this office, um, Scripture talks about, um, you know, having this this fire inside of us we can't contain. Uh, we just need to share the Word of God. You know, Jeremiah uh, talks about that and uh, Paul in a couple places. Um, in f- our, our church right now uh, here in Bend is doing a study on 1 Corinthians, and uh, we were just looking at 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, "'If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel.'" And so, an appropriate uh, desire for the office is one that that is eager to share the gifts of Christ uh, with God's people and not for the sake of personal gain. And of course, in our our Lutheran tradition, um, we really value um, what Luther mentioned in that quote earlier, the call. um, The call of Christ um, to this office, the divine call to a pastor, uh, does not come immediately. It comes immediately. Um, God uses his church to call men into this office. And so to be seeking it for yourself uh, without the affirmation um, of the people of God um, is not what Paul is talking about here. Mm.
0: Well, so the desire or the aspiration to the office is a good thing. And it is to the desire itself, I would say, is good. And the task itself is good. Both of those things are are held up by Paul's good here. But the desire and the aspiration all by itself doesn't actually put you into the office. That's, that's God's
1: doing. Absolutely.
0: And he does that. We would say then, as, as you said, not immediately and immediately meaning without means. And the means that right. he does is, as you said, the church. So again, my, my feeling inside of me that desires the office of the pastoral man, as you described, and, and as you could ask any pastor, you know, when, when did you think you wanted to be a pastor? What led you down this road? And, and he'll tell you a variety of reasons. I mean, Oftentimes it'll be an influential pastor within the life. It might be a father who's a pastor it might be encouraging church members that said you would make a good pastor. All of those things might lead a man to have this good desire, but he's not in the office until God actually puts him there. And I think that's, I mean, that's probably how you get from verse one into the rest of this text. How do you know exactly. if this desire is something that's coming from God? Well, does he have these gifts from God?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, um, that's, that's why, you know, verse one is followed by the rest of these verses. And we have, you know, this, this very Pauline, you know, sort of approach where he just lists off all these words in rapid succession, um, because it's important for the church to know, um, what does, you know, such a man look like, you know, just personally speaking, you talk about the desire placed within your heart. Um, I am the son of a pastor and, for most of my life. Um, my dad encouraged me to consider the ministry, but he wasn't the type of pastor that, you know, m- made me ever feel like I was forced to do that or anything like that. And I always thought, well, that's nice, but I, d- I don't really know about that. Um, but I do have just a very specific moment where things just changed for me. Um, and it happened to be in, in Plainview, Texas, a great state, uh, that's right. right, right there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I was just out with some friends. We were on a, a trip, uh, for Ongoing Ambassadors for Christ uh, to the national training there in Oklahoma City. And um, God just used that trip to show me um, the ways in which I could could be serving him. And I was looking at the that big Texas sky and all the stars. And that's the moment I look back on when I, I started to desire this noble task and, and listen to some of the people who've been pointing me in that direction.
0: Right. And, and then, I mean, so that's a good thing but that didn't put you into the office. Just like those pastors that that told me or or when I was confirmed and and encouraged me along that way and and things just kind of kept going that way, none of that put me into the office. And that's where you you have a desire like that and then you... Well, you look at the means by which God gives you, and you, you look at His Word. Do I fit with these things? And and you examine your own heart. As you were saying, there is an inappropriate way to desire the office, to do so for personal gain rather than for a desire to share the gospel with others, to preach the Word, to administer the sacraments. And so, the desire is a good thing, but as, oh, it's James who says, you know, be careful about going into that teaching office, lest lest you I mean, Paul's got warnings here. James has warnings. I think Peter has warnings in his epistles too. be careful so that you don't use this noble task, this good desire for selfish purposes and end up falling into a greater sin.
1: Exactly. It's something to to view rightly and to take seriously. Right. And that's what Paul encourages us encourages us to do here, both of those things.
0: So before we get into this list, which we'll probably pick up on the other side of the break, we need to talk about just the term, a noble task, because there's a lot that we can look at just in those two words, both in English and in Greek. What What is it about this noble task that Paul speaks so highly of?
1: Yeah, the, the Greek here is, is kalu ergu, which um, for many of us pastors who at least um, had William Utech for class... Um, that's a phrase that we'll never forget, uh, because I think it was maybe even the first day of pastoral ministry. Um, he kind of went on this long monologue that was just very emotional, and very touching, uh, describing the different things that a pastor might do. Um, you know, he talks about, you know, you, you go and pray with a family after, after a baby is born, and they had had two miscarriages before, and you get to lift up, you know, this child and give thanks to God. And then this phrase that ended each of those stories, that's a Kalu Ergu, and not everybody gets to do that. Um, and for me at least, and I I think for most of, of the pastors in in my class and in many other years, um, that really just put in a beautiful perspective, um, what a noble task this is, a, a good and, and beautiful work, um, that we have the privilege of sharing in, um, you know, pastors, it, it is a noble task to which you've been called. A good and beautiful work, one to rejoice in and to take seriously. Um, because as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we are, are servants of Christ. Uh, we're stewards of the mysteries of God. Um, the mysteries of God are this precious treasure that God has given us. Um, and Paul says there also in, in that same section, uh, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful and so, both there and then here, especially in 1 Timothy 3 and, and in Titus 1 and in places like that, um, Paul holds up both the beauty of the office and the task that, that the pastor is given to do, um, as well as the, the very serious um, nature that uh, that it is and and how seriously we should take it as we approach that.
0: So, we've got... A noble task being desired, the office of overseer. And Paul then will give us in the rest of the text, verses 2 through 7, this list of qualifications. We've got just about two minutes here before our break. Why are the, before we look at them individually, why are the qualifications so important, particularly in a letter like this?
1: yeah I think um, in the context of of the letter especially um, it's important to be reminded of you know what we've heard already in the first couple of chapters that Timothy himself is this this young overseer this episcopate um, and so first and foremost, uh, Timothy should himself be adhering to um, these qualifications and be the type of of person that that an overseer is supposed to be. Um, as we've already mentioned, too, Timothy was, was likely given the task of appointing other overseers. Um, we know that, that Paul explicitly commands Titus to do this, for example, in Titus 1, uh, which is a very similar text. Uh, so Timothy is in a place of oversight, not only over the church, but over those uh, who will be pre- teaching and preaching in the church as well. Um, this list that Paul gives here is, is actually pretty similar to some other ancient texts as well, um, in both Jewish and Gentile sources, um, where a list of qualifications is given for important jobs. Um, so it's important uh, for pastors to exercise the same care um, over their lives as the doctrine uh, with which they've been entrusted. And so as we look at these qualifications in a second here, um, we'll notice that they really have to do with the character of the leader more so than, the nature of that noble task um paul you know describes the nature of that throughout the rest of the letter um but character matters um you know in politics we might elect somebody whose character is is a little questionable because we feel that they have uh, what it takes to do some of the other aspects of that job um some do some don't but i mean in in the case of pastors um character matters a great deal Uh, This list also isn't meant to be exhaustive, um, but to kind of set the general tone of what the pastor is supposed to look like. Um, Paul does this a lot. And, you know, Romans 1, he has this list of all these different sins, and it's not exhaustive of every sin. And, you know, Romans 8, he has this list of all these things that could maybe separate us from the love of Christ, but none of it can. Um, This list is is kind of similar here. And then kind of a a final thing is that um, this list, even though it's specifically for pastors, really is comprised of, of things that every Christian um, ought to be exhibiting in their own lives. Um, and so, you know, Paul will say in the next chapter, uh, Timothy set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And uh, this list of qualifications is, is one of the greatest ways for him to do that.
0: We'll take a look at that list of qualifications. On the other side of the break, you're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUL. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, October 28th. We're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We've got Pastor Caleb Adams with us. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon. Pastor Adams, prior to the break, we spent plenty of time talking about verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And having laid out that trustworthy saying, now... Paul gives Timothy a long list of qualifications for what one who desires the office of overseer, the office of pastor ought to look like. And you said these are mostly going to deal with the man's character, not so much with his actions. There will be one in particular, and we'll point that out when we get to it, but most of them deal with character. And the very first thing that's listed as it's translated here in the ESV is that an overseer must be above reproach. Take us into that very first qualification Paul lists.
1: Yeah, so this qualification really uh, seems to act uh, not only as the introduction to the list, uh, but almost the umbrella under which uh, the rest of the list uh, kind of rests. Um, the, the overseer is to be above reproach, is to be blameless, is to be um, kind of beyond susceptibility to, to criticism. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that the pastor is to be without critics, um, because if you think about it, uh, certainly Paul and and even Jesus had plenty of critics, um, but it refers to a a lifestyle uh, that is blameless. Uh, Luther reminds us, before God, no one is above reproach, uh, but before men, the bishop is to be so. Um, John Chrysostom, church father, points out that um, in the early church, you know, in, in the book of Acts and, and that time period, um, the apostles had plenty of opponents, um, but the accusations that were brought against them um, did not have to do with with scandalous things, that they were living, um, you know, a scandalous life or, or they were unclean or covetous or things like that, um, but instead that they were deceivers, uh, that their claims of truth, namely that Jesus Christ is himself the truth, um, was really the only thing that they could be reproached for. Um, and so' that's, that's what Paul is saying here as he as he kicks off this list of qualifications um, that a pastor is to be uh, someone who lives a, a clean and, and godly lifestyle um, that others do not have grounds to criticize. Um, this isn't a, a demand uh, for the pastor to be without critics, as we said. it's certainly also not a demand uh, for the pastor to be entirely sinless. Um, because if that was the case, the the church would never have any shepherds except for the one good shepherd, uh, Jesus. Uh, Luther quotes Jerome in this. um, You know, oftentimes Luther will quote the church fathers and use them to back up what he's saying. And then other times he'll use them to say, isn't this ridiculous? And that's the case here. You know, Jerome um, commenting on this passage said, a bishop must be the sort of man whom no sin has contaminated since his baptism. And Luther says, therefore, Jerome himself was never a bishop nor has anyone else ever been um, and so this is again um, a calling for the the pastor to live a life uh, that does not give anyone um, good reason uh, to uh, to point out the pastor's sin um, even though the pastor certainly will not be completely without sin
0: right I mean this is this as you said this is an umbrella which really holds the rest of these qualifications together. And this is, it's a challenging one right off the bat that, you know, not without critics, but that the critics can't make something stick, that they might try to throw something at you, but the charge won't stick, which again, can't mean sinless. And even, even thinking about that very first trustworthy saying, we were talking about it before the break, Paul, who is in the office of apostle, which certainly if this applies to an overseer, these qualifications would apply to an apostle, I think as well. Paul admits that he is the chief of sinners, and he even tells you what that means when he talks about his hostile past towards Christianity. So apparently that did not prevent Paul from being above reproach. And yet there is this this tension there that, okay, I I, as a pastor, I'm not going to be sinless, but I need to be above reproach. Where where does that line get drawn? And I don't know, I don't, I don't expect you to have an easy answer because I don't think there is one, but it's maybe something to reflect on. Where does that line get drawn where you've gone past that line of now I'm not above reproach?
1: I think that's a great question. I think it's a very difficult one. I think it's one that uh, that the church needs to continue to have and in each individual case um, needs to seek the you know, the wisdom that only the Spirit can give us. Um, But I I love that contrast you drew between, you know, the first trustworthy saying and then, um, you know, kind of the first implication, you might say, of of the second one. Um, The pastor, and namely Timothy in this case, right, is supposed to, like Paul, consider himself the worst of sinners and above reproach. Um, another good, uh, maybe Lutheran paradox here with the similar uses at peccator. But it's a tough question. Uh, just how much of a peccator can, can the pastor be before he's disqualified from the office, right? And I think, um, you know, all of us have, have heard, um, you know, the sad stories, and, and many of us unfortunately have lived through them, of a, a pastor who is not above reproach, um, whose lifestyle or whose decisions or whose treatment of of his people or others um, disqualifies him from the office and, and does a lot of damage to the church. And so, you know, I, I think as we mentioned, all of these are things that that every Christian is uh, to live out. Um, but I, I do believe that pastors are held to a higher standard, and we're supposed to be the example. Uh, you mentioned before the break that there are several passages that, that warn people who seek leadership in the church of the consequences of of that decision. Um, We will be, we will be judged, um, you know, more, more harshly or more, more strictly, I guess would be a better word for that. And so, um, you know, I I think in our Missouri Synod we have certain things um, that cross the line. Um, But then I I think really it's, it's a lot of prayer and and conversation and seeking reconciliation. Um, But there, there can become a point where the pastor um, is no longer above reproach and um, needs to to vacate the office. Mm.
0: There's certainly a, a great deal of humility that's necessary when it comes to this one in particular from from the man himself who would desire the office to honestly ask and examine, is there part of my life, something there that would prevent me from being above reproach? And, and thinking, and I can't remember exactly how you said it, but thinking at it, from the good of the church, not about me and my desire, but what's good for the church, what's good for the proclamation of the gospel. Am I, based on either what's in my past or what I'm doing right now, am I putting that stumbling block in front of someone, whether it's a current member of the church or it's someone who has not heard the gospel and believed it, am I going to put a stumbling block by my life to the, the hearing of that gospel for this person? And and that kind of humility is is really difficult. It, it requires a humility from the pastor. I think it requires humility from the church as well, because it would be it would be easy perhaps for for a congregation to look at a pastor and be so quick to criticize, to say, well, I don't to turn I don't like you into an accusation of the man not being above reproach. And so there there's got to be humility both from pastor and people, as you said, seeking the Lord's will in prayer, such that we do. Put men into the office who we know are sinners, but will, as we promised when we we're ordained, adorn that office with the holy life, with the help of God, so that the gospel can be proclaimed to all.
1: Yeah, I, I love how you said that. Um, as a pastor is desiring or aspiring to the office, as we talked about, his focus should not be on himself, uh, but should be on the church and, and the good of, of God's people. And in the same way, I think... Um, The pastor should always be considering that. Are my actions, is my life um, being lived out for the sake of my brothers and sisters in Christ whom he has called me to serve, or am I seeking my own benefit? It should never be a matter of, I deserve this or I'm entitled to this office. Um, It's humility, as you said.
0: So, with that as the overarching theme for all of this, and I, I know we're not going to get to each one of these terms, Pastor Adams, but we'll we'll do our best to at least touch on on a good number of them. The next thing Paul lists is the husband of one wife, which we probably could spend well. We could we could at least write a whole treatise on this, I suppose. Right? The, <laughs> the Lutheran Confessions use this passage and, and others to talk about marriage when it comes to to pastors, uh, without necessarily going to all those details. Uh, what is, what's the point here? Why the husband of one wife?
1: Yeah, well, certainly, as you mentioned, um, the Lutheran Confessions use this to point out the, the pretty obvious um, truth that it's not wrong for pastors or, you know, those members of the clergy to be married. Um, but yeah, there is quite a bit of controversy over exactly what this means. Um, you know, if you read the Greek just very woodenly, um, it says that the pastor should be a one woman man or a, a one wife husband. Um, And so, some have said that means that uh, they should not be polygamists or bigamists, um, like Philip of Hesse, for example. Um, Some say that they should not get remarried, um, whether it's after a divorce or after the death of their wife. Um, Some would say that this is Paul prohibiting those who are single from um, entering the office of the ministry, which is also an interesting claim, seeing as how Paul himself uh, has kind of a whole chapter in first Corinthians about how he's single. And that's, you know, maybe even a little bit better <laughs> for those who want to serve God. Um, so uh, what this seems to to be saying really is just that the pastor is to be um, a faithful husband. If he has a wife, he is to be, be true to her. He is supposed to be uh, for his people and for the world, a, a picture of that, you know, kind of Ephesians five way of looking at what marriage is. It is a, a picture of the love of Christ for his bride, the church. And so the pastor ought to exhibit that in a, a faithful, monogamous marriage relationship. Hmm.
0: It's it's interesting that, that this is the very next thing that comes up, or if we take above reproach again as the overarching theme, that this is the first specific thing that comes up, the husband of one wife. It deals with the man's family life. And again, as you said, not a requirement that he have a wife, but if he does, that he be faithful to her. And I think bringing up Ephesians five is, is excellent that as, as a husband, he would model the love that Christ has for the church. It's again, particularly important for the pastor. If, if I can let's, let's, and I, I well, I don't know if, if maybe there is an order to this, but, but if I can, I'm going to, I'm to tie that to what else Paul says to family life. So let's let's kind of fast forward our conversation. We'll come back to these sure. in the middle. But let's pick up where Paul says in verse 4. He he brings the household up again. So I'll, I'll reread it. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now again we've we skipped over a long part of the list, but we are dealing in that matter of the man's household. Why is this such a big deal for paul and and how does that then also apply not only to the way he he acts with his wife, but also the way he treats his
1: children? Yeah, this is a very big deal for Paul, and we see that um, in a couple of ways. Um it's the first quality qualification that he mentions after that umbrella beyond reproach. Um, and then when we get to um, you know verses four and five, um, you know we've had this list of one or maybe two words up to this point, and now we have two verses. Um, so clearly, um, the the home life of the pastor and the way he he lives with and, and treats his wife and children is is incredibly significant. Um, and so you know I think the the way that we often read this passage is um, kind of as the pastor's household is, uh, so will his church be and and that seems to be the general sentiment. you know that's what paul's saying if if he can't manage his own household, how will he manage? the church of God. Um, you see this in, you know, certain study Bibles kind of say this, the home is the proving ground of Christian character. Um, the attitudes of the children reflect the fruit of their spiritual management of his home, um, and thus forecast the effect of his, the pastor's leadership in the church. Um, honestly, it's a, a bit unnerving for those of us who are, are familiar with the stereotype of the rebellious PK, you know, the pastor's kid, who's a little bit more, uh, out there than everybody else. Maybe, um, but this is, this is incredibly important for Paul. Uh, so what are we to make of this? Um, I think that there are, there are kind of two basic ways to see what Paul's saying here. I personally think they're both actually very accurate and very helpful. Um, the first one is the way I think we usually think of this. Um, if a pastor is not able to, to do the uh, little thing, if you will, managing his household well, um, how can he do the big thing? you know, caring for the church. If he can't take care of his own kids and, you know, just a few people, how's he going to manage the church of God? Um, and, uh, you know, we, we see this kind of in the, in the church fathers and things like that. And, and so I I think that's a helpful thing to think about. Um, though I would modify it a little bit, um, because I think a second way to understand this, or maybe another nuance to it, uh, would be this, um, since the management of, of the household of a pastor, um, is the first vocation given to him by God? Um, you might, you know, throw a marriage in there before that, I suppose. Uh, but if he is, he is not tending to his first vocation, his family properly, um, he will not have enough left uh, to fulfill his second vocation of caring for the church as he should. And I think this is an important uh, thing for us to keep in mind um, because oftentimes, you know, we see these pastors who take their ministry to the to the church so very seriously. Uh, they, they become wedded to the church and uh, the family uh, really suffers as a result, which I think is is in large part what contributes to that stereotype of the rebellious PK. Um, and so I, I think both of these things are important to hold in tension. And I would say that to say that the management of the household is the lesser thing or the little thing and the management of the church is the bigger thing um, is not the best way to look at it. They are both incredibly big things, and uh, God desires that the pastor uh, rightly prioritize the vocations uh, to which he's been called. Hmm.
0: And I, th- I think that the reason I wanted to tie those two together is because he does mention the husband of one wife right there at the beginning, indicating that that relationship between the pastor and his wife, if, if that is the relationship that he has in holy marriage— that that is a priority for the pastor. He doesn't leave that behind as a pastor, but that how he treats his wife within their marriage and then later in the text how he treats his children in the household actually has bearing upon how he serves as pastor. And I appreciate the way that you said it doesn't mean that his vocation is husband or his vocation as father is somehow less important, but that these things are actually tied together in this one man who, who holds these different vocations and for him to neglect those vocations of husband and father is going to have an effect on his vocation as pastor and it will be a negative effect. And so he needs to be careful about that, that as he, maybe, maybe the way we can think about it is this, just speaking from the pastor's perspective if I want to be a good pastor, I should also seek to be a good husband and a good father. Assuming the Lord has given me those vocations as well, uh, rather than seeing it more, as you said, in what can come off in a, a rather negative way, uh, and and certainly there's law, right? There's again, this is another place for that that self-examination for the pastor: Am I being a good father? Am I being a good husband? And if I'm not, am I doing it in such a way that I've somehow been disqualified from the office? This is a matter for the, for the man to consider in humility, according to the word of God and in prayer. Uh, but but I, I appreciate the way you framed it, that, that it doesn't mean that these vocations are somehow less important or unimportant. Far from it. They actually greatly affect the way that this man serves as a pastor. So I appreciate you indulging that connecting two that are a little farther apart. We're going to run out of time here. <laughs> and that, that's okay. So let me, I'll, I'll ask you. We've got about eight minutes, and as you see, there's there's a huge list. Well, I think we should at least touch on able to teach for sure because that's that's the one in there that doesn't have to do with his character. So let's let's talk on that, and then we can just pick up whatever whatever's left. So let's talk about the the term able to teach.
1: Sure. Yeah. Like you said, that that seems to be the one uh, qualification that. Um, does not necessarily apply to every Christian. Um, all of these other ones, you know, the ones that lead up to it, the sober mindedness, self-control, respectability, hosp- hospitality, um, all of that were all called upon. Um, but the pastor is in particular supposed to be able to teach Um in some places in the New Testament, this gift of teaching um, is listed separately, um, kind of in addition to the pastoral office. Um, and in other places, they're combined. The pastor is to be the one who teaches. Um, my take on that is that it shows us that not all teachers need to be pastors, but that all pastors do need to be teachers. Um, and, uh, you know, much of this list is uh, repeated immediately following the qualifications for the deacons, you know, in the, the, next, uh, the next text. Um, but this one isn't. Uh, this seems to set the pastors apart from the deacons um, in this particular way. Uh, Luther said this is the chief responsibility and duty of the bishop, the ministry of the word, um, which explains why in the, the other pastoral epistles we see Paul uh, really tell Timothy and Titus that they need to have a firm grasp of of the word of God. Um, you know, Titus one, nine must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Um, second Timothy three sixteen very famous verse, all scriptures read that by God and profitable for all sorts of things that Timothy is supposed to be doing, um, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work.
0: All right. We got six minutes now, What you, you tell me what, what term do you want to pick out? I mean, we've got a little bit of time, but what, which ones do you want to pick out here?
1: yeah that's a good question. I think you know the the ones in in verse two, the sober mindedness, self-control, respectable, um, those three really really go together. This kind of describes a man who who is in charge of himself, um, who controls his his desires and passions. Um, and uh, Luther said um, of those three these are the the priestly robes, the royal adornment, the gems and precious stones of our errands um this is this is how we are to adorn um, the office of the ministry with a godly life, as you mentioned from our our ordination vows um, and so um, that's just uh, such a, a vital part of who the pastor is supposed to be and then verse three uh, really deals with the things a pastor is not supposed to be, um, not a drunkard, um, not addicted to wine, not being an excessive drinker. Uh, Luther is sure to point out you know that, that Paul is writing to Greeks. Uh, where there is no beer. Um, Of course, Luther had plenty of that, um, and yet he also talks about uh, the importance of of not overindulging in that. Um, Just like in all those character traits in verse 2, moderation is the key. And uh, Paul would even tell Timothy later in this very letter uh, to drink some wine to help with his stomach. So it's certainly not a complete prohibition on alcohol, but um, a complete prohibition on, on alcoholism. Um, and then the next few really um, deal with um, the pastor's disposition toward others, um, not violent, but gentle, um, not a brawler, um, not quarrelsome, talking maybe about physical fighting, but more so about um, just being confrontational or being a bully or something like that. And we're not supposed to be that way. Um, we're supposed to be, be gentle and loving, um, not a lover of money. This is a a term, um, that literally says, um, not one who loves silver. There's the, the Greek alpha privated, which, uh, which negates the rest of the phrase. Um, you know, Paul will address that later on in first Timothy, when he talks about the love of money being a root of all kinds of evils. Um, then these last two, um, really kind of bring things full circle. Um, not a recent convert. This is kind of an interesting one. Paul has a lot to say about that too. um, Martin Franzman once wrote that uh, pride is the besetting sin of the clergy. Um, and so if that's the case for all pastors, um, how much more so somebody who's quickly elevated to to leadership in the church when their faith is still young and um, newly planted, as the word uh, neophyte from the Greek there um, actually means. And then this last one just really has to do with um, above reproach, I think kind of restating it specifically in in the pastor's public life. Paul's dealt with the pastor's kind of personal life and, and character, his family life, and now uh, his public life. Um, and this seems maybe a little bit defensive. Luther certainly interprets that in his context that, you know, everybody's kind of out to get us. And so we need to give them no cause um, to complain about us. Um, but I think here, this is really more... Um, For the opposite effect this is so that the church can most effectively be what it is the light of the world um, that is tasked with the the noble task you might say um, of sharing the word um, of forgiveness through christ jesus um, with the world and so uh, paul doesn't want anything to hinder his church from doing that. And I, I love the, the correspondence between uh, Pliny the Younger um, and the, the Roman Emperor Trajan. You know, Pliny is trying to figure out who on earth are these, these Christians, a strange sect. And he's kind of investigating what they're all about. And he doesn't really know a whole lot. He misunderstands quite a few things. Uh, but in writing to this Roman Emperor, which is kind of the first time a Roman Emperor really knows some details about what's going on with these guys, um, he says this, "'Let men say what they want about those Christians.'" They are humble and have every good intention. Uh, may the world say the same thing about each one of us. Mm.
0: Pastor Adams, with just about two minutes here, as we reflect on this text, these seven verses for 1 Timothy 3, what do we do with a text like this? Particularly if if I'm not a pastor, what do I do with this text? And then how does a text like this, which is a lot of law, I mean, this is telling what you should be and what you should do as a pastor. How does a text like this point us to Christ? Again, with about two minutes.
1: Yeah, um I would say if if you are not a pastor, and there are a couple of things. First and, and maybe most obviously, if you're looking for a pastor, here's here's a great place to start. Um and maybe I'll I'll save some other comments for um for last here. I think especially for us pastors, it is a lot of law. Um it's kind of an intimidating passage actually when I when I found out this was the text I was going to be asked to talk about. Um to be honest, my first reaction was Oh boy, um, there is a lot of law, but I think um, it points us to Christ because He is the the perfect embodiment of all of these things, and He's not just our example; He's the one who who was sober minded, self controlled, um, who did all of these things perfectly uh, to cover over all the times that we did not, and that is exactly what the the noble task um, of being a pastor um, is all about. Um, it's an incredible privilege, and. Um, points us back to that first noble saying, we are the the chief of sinners, but, um, Christ died for us. And that's what we get to share. And so, um, if you have a pastor, you probably through some of these, um, things are like, yeah, that's, that's him. That's exactly what my pastor is like. Um, but I'm guessing that there are maybe one or two where, where you found yourself thinking, you know, my pastor doesn't necessarily always look like that. now that's because your pastor is a human being and is not Jesus. Um, you know, just as all of us Christians are are asked to uphold all of these things, um, except maybe that able to teach and uh, regularly fail to do so. Um, your pastor is going to fail to do them perfectly at times too. Um, we should hold ourselves and especially our pastors to a high standard, um, but never ever lose sight of the mercy of Christ and, and the forgiveness and the restoration that only He can bring to to poor miserable sinners, uh, even and maybe especially to those who. Who preach and teach in the church uh, so that's true of anyone looking for a pastor anyone who is a pastor and, and anyone who's blessed to have a pastor um, if you do have a pastor you are in a, a very unique position uh, to be able to uphold him and, and help him to uphold the qualities and qualifications that we've been talking about today
0: Pastor Caleb Adams is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend Oregon helping us today with 1st Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7 Pastor Adams thanks for being our guest today
1: Thank you so much.
0: God gives pastors to proclaim that good news of Christ, crucified and risen, who has come for the chief of sinners. That includes your pastor. Thanks be to God for his gift of pastors. Thanks be to God for his gift of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.